Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente, Emeritus. Thank you, and welcome to Episode 16 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I am your host, Eric Fritzhughes. On August 17th, our organization and our state lost one of the major champions of literature in Appalachia when writer Shirley Young Campbell passed away at the age of 91 at her home in Charleston. Mrs. Campbell was a teacher, a writer, a poet, a playwright, a newspaper columnist, an editor, and a publisher. She was also nearly single-handedly responsible for the creation of our organization, West Virginia Writers, in 1977, as well as co-founding the publishing house Mountain State Press in 1978. Among her published works are a non-fiction educational book about the coal industry entitled Coal and People, a novel called From Black Dirt, a collection of newspaper columns called Scribbling and More, and three collections of poetry entitled No Theme, But These and a Few Others Have Been Published, and Still No Theme, and Flowers Grow in Coal Dust. She also spent seven years as the editor and publisher of the magazine Hill and Valley. As a part of this special double-sized episode, I spoke with three members of West Virginia writers who knew Mrs. Campbell from the early days of our organization. Kirk Judd, Dr. Barbara Smith, and Dolly Withrow are each counted among the charter members of West Virginia writers. Kirk Judd has been a guest here in the past. His first volume of poetry, Field of Vision, was published in 1986. His second collection, Dow Billy, was released in 1996. Along with Dr. Barbara Smith, he's a co-editor of the widely acclaimed anthology Wild Sweet Notes, 50 Years of West Virginia Poetry. He's also one of the founders of the Allegheny Echoes Workshops in Pocahontas County. Dr. Barbara Smith is a writer, editor, and medical ethicist. She is Emerita Professor of Literature and Writing for Alderson Broadus College. Her most recent book is a collection of sports poetry for middle school and high school English classes called On Golf and Various Other Sports and Non-Sports. She is the founding editor of the long-running literary publication Grab a Nickel. Dolly Withrow is the author of four books, including Penny Candy and Apple Orchard. She is a columnist for the Charleston Daily Mail and the State Journal. In addition to her ongoing column work, she has an article that will appear in the winter issue of Now and Then, an Appalachian Journal. Though I interviewed each of them separately, I've blended much of our conversation together in order to better cover the different aspects of Mrs. Campbell's career. I would also like to say a big thank you to Phyllis Wilson-Moore for her help behind the scenes. Phyllis gave me a real footing when it came to discussing Mrs. Campbell's life and her accomplishments with our guest this week. We begin now with Kirk Judd as I ask him how it was he came to know Shirley Young Campbell. Oh, I met Shirley probably around 1975. I was writing. She saw a poem of mine somewhere. I was a member of the Appalachian Literary League back then with Mike Polly and Pat Love, um, Terry Hill, a bunch of us. And they put out, or we put out, a little thing called the Illustrated Appalachian Intelligencer. There was a woman named Helma Forsyth who saw the Intelligencer, and she she contacted Shirley, and she put us in contact together 
and Shirley was a poet and a writer and a teacher and a promoter of West Virginia literature. And she contacted me or she called me or sent me a letter or something, and we started a correspondence that lasted 20 years probably. She, I would send her poems, and she would send me comments, and, and uh, we would talk about literature. And then we just continued. Shirley started up uh, Hill and Valley around the same time we started Western Writers. Dolly Withrow, how did you come to know Shirley Young Campbell? Well, it was a long, long time ago, um, before I started the college, and I was comparatively young. And I saw, I think it must have been an ad in the newspaper that a writing class was being offered at the YWCA in Charleston, West Virginia. So I enrolled with a childhood friend, and we went up there, and Shirley was leading the class. And that's how I first met her, and we became friends. Um, And I remember, uh, I was trying to remember something about the class, And, of course, you can't teach people how to write. You know that. You can teach them grammar rules and how to construct sentences, but you can't really give them the insight to be good writers. So she didn't try that. She gave us exercises. And I remember one was to describe uh, someone's hands who had a tremendous influence in your life. And uh, and that turned out to be, um, well a jump start for us. But anyway, I think the class lasted maybe 12 weeks, and then that was the last I heard of Shirley um, until a group, she was getting a group together with uh, Jim Andrews um, to form a statewide writing organization. And so she called me and asked me if I would attend um, the first meeting. Kirk, you've spoken before on the podcast about the origins of West Virginia Writers and Mrs. Campbell's involvement in it, but listening back to that segment, what I didn't realize was just how much of a force she was in the formation of the organization from even the very idea of it. Could you tell us a little more detail about how deeply involved she truly was? Sure. Um, Most people who know the history of the organization know that there was a group of 25 writers who met at the invitation of James Andrews, the Division of Culture and History. What they probably don't know is who compiled the list of 25, and that was Shirley. Um, She had um, mentioned to me and many others that there should be some sort of support from the state for writers. And so she probably bugged uh, Jim Andrews until he said, all right, let's get together and talk about it. And they met one-on-one, and she went to his office, and he suggested, or they together came to the conclusion that it might be good to see if we could form a writer's organization that could then help the state by... uh, by distributing some funds and promoting uh, literary activities in the state of West Virginia. So she sat down and made the list of the original 25. And she sent it out, and she called people, and she got people there to that first meeting. Barbara Smith, were you among the original 25 members invited to that first West Virginia Writers' Meeting? No, I was, I was on the second meeting, I think. 
but I was not there for the very, very first one. And were you aware of, of Mrs. Campbell at the time? I'm not, I don't remember, honestly. I believe that I knew her from, you know, and what she was doing in publishing. Mm-hmm. But not as, I had not met her personally. What are some of your memories of the early meetings of the group? Well, it was a very compatible group. Uh, Shirley was determined, and she def- definitely was the, what you might call the spiritual leader for West Virginia writers. She was absolutely determined we were going to succeed. And I think she kind of badgered Jim Andrews until it did succeed, until we got some funding to get going. Dolly, what are some of your memories of the first exploratory meeting that Mrs. Campbell called of the group that would become West Virginia Writers? Well, you know, I'm trying to remember whether we, I think we met in the Cultural Center, uh, seems to me downstairs, and I remember that um, Jim Andrews talked and he said there would be some financial support for writers if we wanted to form a statewide group, and um, I remember... Uh, I think I sat beside Shirley, but she also stood and and talked. I don't recall now what she said, but it was simply um, an effort to get get more people involved. Now, we also met a second time at the Marvin Midtown Motel in Charleston, West Virginia, and I remember that Jim Comstock headed that, and that was all in connection uh, probably with the Mountain State Press because it some point that was brought in too and uh, I don't know whatever happened um, but I don't hear Jim Comstock mention much in connection with promotion of writers and he, Jim was a, a businessman you know primarily he was as well as a writer but um, I remember we all met again at the Midtown Motel. There would not be a West Virginia writers had there not had there not been Shirley Campbell. So she's, she was really the touch point, uh, the, the genesis of the whole organization and the idea for the whole organization. And, and then from that, she you know she was involved. She she helped write the charter. She was uh, involved. She did not want to be an officer early on um, because she was busy with Hill and Valley and some other things. But she was a a huge influence in the organization over the next 15, 20 years. Yeah, throughout much of its history, at least through 1994 or so, when, from what I understand, she asked to, to step down from being as active with the organization. From what I'm told by everybody I've talked to, she was a driving force throughout much of its existence. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, there, Shirley was was stamped all over West Virginia writers. I mean, she shaped much of the of the uh, early direction of, of the organization. That's true. She was uh, very evident behind the scenes and not very far behind the scenes. Uh, she prodded us when we didn't get moving as fast as she wanted us to, and uh, we'd get calls from her, letters from her saying, why is, hasn't this been done, and who was supposed to do this and so, and uh, so she kept us going. There's no question about that. The the fact that we had competitions was, I think, Shirley uh, was very big into that because she wanted her big thing was recognition for West Virginia writers, and the, and she got she got uh, Comstock involved, and uh, and that's how we 
kind of sort of got, got Mount State Press started. Uh, what was her involvement with the formation of uh, Mountain State Press? Well, uh, she brought Comstock in um, to the early meetings for West Virginia writers. And Comstock basically told us, you got to decide what you got, what you want to do. Uh, if you want to put out, uh, I mean, because we had had two or three meetings at the time, and, and we said, well, we wanted, you know, a press. We wanted a venue for West Virginia writers. We wanted recognition. We wanted to get published. We wanted this, and that, and the other. And he said, all right, you guys got to decide what you want to do because you're, you're writers. If you want to be a, a group of writers, then get the hell out of this building, which was the cultural the, the, the cultural palace, the, the mm-hmm. cultural center, and go write and send that stuff to me or to some entity that is a publisher who has editors and publishers who's that's their job because that's not what you all do. He said you need to have a division of labor here, and and it argued <laughs> which he couldn't nobody could believe because I was very young. Uh, but uh, he made sense, and, and and it it was that, and he was right. That we did not have anybody experienced in publishing or editing, or how to how to even put together a, a publication or a book or a collection or an anthology or a magazine or anything. And so he donated. He he said, "Let me tell you, well, I'm not in this for myself," because there were some folks who said, "Well, you're just trying to get us to." to give you half the grant. He said, no, 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 I'm not in this for myself. I'll give you my press. And he did. He gave us the, the hardware. He gave us the printing press. <laughs> and that became the first uh, uh, machinery, the equipment that we had, that, and that became Mountain State Press. So and, it, by saying so, he gave you the press, he didn't give you access to the press. He physically gave you the press. He gave us the press. <laughs> And Shirley spent a year, well, probably not a year, several months saying, what can we do with this? How can we handle this? Where's it going to go? And so finally she and Plumley wangled uh, Morris Harvey University, which is now the University of Charleston, into, all right, let's, let's put it there. And she, you know, she worked with Comstock, and Comstock said, "You got to have somebody that can run this thing. You got to have somebody here. You got to have an office. You got to have somebody answers the phone. You got to do this." And so we went for a, uh, a staff development grant, and we actually hired a secretary. And so the first full-time employee of Mount State Press was hired by West Virginia Writers, and her name was Nanny Reese. She was retired, and she was the secretary for years and years down there. And that was all, all of that got started, and they, was, they started getting submissions in, and they got a board together, and they started looking at things, and they actually started publishing some things, and that was all because Shirley, and Comst- Shirley had brought Comstock in and worked with Comstock and Bill Plumley to get that thing up and running. Now, after a few years, they split off and became a, a, another entity unto themselves. But that was the beginnings of Mount State Press. And again, that was, I mean, there wouldn't have been a Mountain State Press had there not been a Shirley Campbell. Barbara, I know you've been published with Mountain State Press on a number of occasions, uh, starting with your very first novel, which I believe was Six Miles Out? Yes. And that, I think, was in 1981. That's right. And then your most recent collection of short stories, Chick Flicks, was published by them. 
Right, as was uh, circumstance of death. And after working with Jim Comstock at Mountain State Press, she later went back and worked with him again, uh, writing a newspaper column for his West Virginia hillbilly newspaper out of Richwood. Yeah, he wrote. she wrote for, for Comstock for a while. She also wrote for one of the Charleston papers, but I'm not sure which one. I believe the Gazette Mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and what I found interesting about what she did for the hillbilly, um, 205 articles from what I've been able to find, and often writing what we would think of as is the typical down-home article with recipes and whatnot. But she also spent a good deal of time in education about the writers of our state, and in particular a series of columns about Hubert and Hobart Skidmore, yeah. who were writers in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, uh, she, she she did that. She did that with uh, the Skidmore brothers. She also did that with uh, uh, Margaret, was it Margaret Blinner, has it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, a couple of other pretty obscure writers that no one knew about, uh, but Shirley knew about because she'd, she'd, had, she'd actually had them in school. She she was very lucky that in, in the school that she grew up in, um, one of her teachers had actually um, had books by the Skidmore brothers. And, and, um, and so Shirley knew about these folks, and, she's, and so she knew that there was a long lineage of West Virginia writers. And so she brought those folks uh, to a lot of people's attention. Uh, and I mean, who knows, they may have been uh, buried and, and forgotten had, had not surely brought them to light again. And now I think uh, all of them are on the literary map of West Virginia, which continues to chronicle the, the writers of the state. Well, she knew West Virginia literature. There's no question. Uh, she, she preceded uh, Phyllis Wilson Moore in knowing West Virginia literature and West Virginia writers, the history of West Virginia literature. She knew it very well. Now, we've alluded to it already, but Shirley published her own magazine for seven years called Hill and Valley. I understand it started in 1977 and was a small press operation she put together and edited directly from her own home. She did the whole job. She typed it all. Now, she did eventually get some help from a daughter with the little illustrations that were in it. But um, she did all the typing. She did the, uh, uh, you know, the solicitation and the uh, choosing of the material and so on and so on. She just did the whole job. And it ran for 80 issues until 1985. Mm-hmm. Do you know the story of how it, how and why it, it began? Well, she just would, again was determined that she was going to support West Virginia writers, particularly. Uh, that is, writers from West Virginia, and mm-hmm. there just weren't many outlets at that point. Hill and Valley was one of the very few. Laurel Review was around, and there were a couple of others, but not much. And the, m- many of the publications which claimed to be Appalachian were not accepting much from West Virginia. So she just was determined that she was going to get more in print, and then she did. <laughs> and did it accept uh, uh, writing of all sorts? Yes. I don't remember that there was a whole lot of non-fiction. Well, there was non-fiction in it, and fiction, short stories, and poetry. And and it didn't, not all of the writers were from West Virginia. So she was not, she did not object to submissions from out of state, but almost all of it was in state. Dolly, did you ever do any writing for Hill and Valley? 
You know, I don't think I ever did. Now, she did put a little booklet together at the end of our class at the YWCA, and, of course, we were in that. And I think she did that in retrospect just to encourage us to show us what it was like to see our name in print, you know. (laughs) That's what writers want to do. Well, that seems to be one of the major factors in her life was encouraging other writers. Well, I think that's true. I think that's true. And Shirley did write poetry. I don't think I ever read her poetry. But when I said to her, you know, publications just don't pay for poetry. And she said, oh, yes, they do. I got $10. (laughs) (laughs) And so I rested my case. I didn't say another word. (laughs) So she did sell some of her poetry. For peanuts, which, you know, unfortunately, uh, Eric, we live in a an age in which poets are just not popular, and mm-hmm. that's too bad. Well, Barbara, you're the editor of the publication Grab a Nickel, which has become the longest living literary publication in our state, having started in 1970. Uh, you actually submitted material to Hill and Valley as well and have poetry in the Best Of collection that was put out in 1985. Right. I didn't start writing until I was teaching here at AB, and um, one of my very first stories she accepted and published, and it, uh, one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned from her, other than the determination, was uh, the difference between censorship and good taste, and she was adamant about the fact that the editor had a right to reject material that did not suit the taste of the editor or the editorial board. And, and that helped me a lot with uh, Gravenickel. While I was editing Gravenickel, I, I could reject material that I thought didn't fit our profile. I can see how that would be a, a, a definite good tool to have in an editor's toolbox, because I've read publications before that that from issue to issue might change in tone. Yeah, depending on the editor. Of course, we, we see that happen. You can, in other words, you can re- submit a piece to a publication, say in nineteen or in uh, two thousand eight, and it's rejected. Two years later, you send the same piece back, but the editor has changed, and it's uh, accepted. We all knew what Shirley liked and didn't like, so we were. She told us you know, outright what kind of material she wanted, and uh, we submitted accordingly. But one of the best compliments I've ever had from an editor came from her. Uh, when I had submitted a story that had a, a violent scene in it, but she then publicly said that this was an example of how violence could be handled without being gross. It was subtle enough and suggestive enough that you could get the, it certainly got the feeling, but the words were not gross. didn't have to be blatant, in other words. How many uh, stories or poems do you do you think you may have had published with Hill and Valley? Oh, a couple dozen anyway. So there's no question she also liked certain writers and didn't like others. So and you knew that pretty quickly, and that's true of many editors. But she, she her big thing was was recognition for West Virginia writers, and and so the the conference and the competition were which are really still the two main thrusts of the organization were very much Shirley's uh, ideas that, that she pushed through many of the things the way that the business was conducted she you know she 
was very big on let's let's use let's have a structure, let's have a charter, let, let's let's do this as a formal organization, and and so we can abide by the rules that were set up by the the state of West by Jim Andrews and the state and go for federal guidelines for a 501c3 organization so that we can be the funding arm for the literary funding arm for Division of Culture and History. Um, all of those things, all those directions, all of those, the personality of the organization is very much Shirley's. And that's one thing that I had wanted to learn more about her because a lot of the research I've been able to do in her is kind of academic, like what she what she did, the things that her accomplishments, essentially. What sort of a person was she? She was a, she was a very sensitive and a very kind person. Um, her children grew up, her children were, were about my age, and, and so her, her children grew up in the 60s and 70s during the turmoil of the country, and when that, that generational thing was starting to, to turn, there, there were there were rebellious streaks going on, and she wanted very much to understand all of that, but just couldn't. She came from this cold country, hard scrabble background, um, and you know, very traditional values, and it, it was it created a, a, a dichotomy in her life, and she tried very hard to understand that, and tried to express that through her writing. But she was a, a, as kind a woman and as an understanding of, of woman, a person as, as I've ever met. She was very, very sensitive to the needs and feelings of others, almost to the point where she she would not uh, pay enough attention to her own. She she sacrificed a lot, but she had a rebellious streak of her own, and I have to point that out to her sometimes. Um, when we first started the the conferences, we didn't know anything about conferences, and so we got folks to come who were on the conference circuit, so to speak. And some of those folks were very good, but some of those folks were just on the conference circuit. And, and they were there because, not because they were good writers or because they were good workshop leaders, they were there just so, because that's what they did. They went around to conferences and, and gave their little shtick. And, and I remember somebody came, and Shirley, who uh, was very sensitive about sharing her writing, by the way. I mean, for someone to be to, to be as outgoing about publishing other people, she she was very sensitive about sharing her own writing. She had a collection of, of poetry. She showed it to one of these workshop leaders, and he just turned his nose up at it and said, oh, well, you should have some sort of theme, any collection of poetry. This just doesn't have a chance of being published anywhere. <laughs> so if, you, if you've done your research, you know that her first, her first collection of poetry was titled No Theme. <laughs> so it's like, you know, a little rebellious... Um, Street there, and and then her second collection was was titled "Still No Theme." Yes, I wondered about that. Well, that's the story behind it. That. <laughs> that's, that's why uh, that's why it was titled that way. So, so, but but she she just took people so much at, at face value that she it never occurred to her that these people might be uh, less than genuine, or might just be telling her things not because they genuinely thought them, just because. They thought that's what would be the correct thing to say to someone who was a uh, regional writer at that time. 
And, and those folks, I mean, there were a dime a dozen. I imagine they still are out there. Um, it's not so bad because we've matured as an organization, and, and we, the folks we get in the conference now are, are, are Southern Appalachian writers, or, or at least who understand that there is a genre like that back then. Mm-hmm. Back then, there wasn't anything. I mean, we were inventing it as we went. One thing just personally about Shirley is that she was very loyal to her family, very family-oriented. And uh, her husband would often traveled with her even when he was unable to drive himself and so on. He had eye problems, like sight problems. But he would come to meetings and uh, sit quietly while she did her thing. Uh, but she was very loyal to her family, and that was evident to all of us who knew her. We talked a little bit about her background growing up in the coal camps and how that influenced her outlook, but it also influenced a great deal of her writing, and in that we can see a wish to, to portray the coal camps in a more positive light. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot of, of negativity about, I mean, well, there still is, I mean, about the, the image of West Virginia and the image of the coal fields. And, and Shirley was one to try and... Explain. I mean, she said, I, you know, I come from a coal camp. I mean, this was before Denise Gardena. This was before uh, folks were writing about coal camps. And, and, and she said, there's, there's good people there. It's not just coal operators being mean to folks and all tobacco chewing, you know, pickup truck running, moonshine drinking, coal miners. It's just not the way it is. And so she, she tried to describe that. And, and, uh, it, it's funny. Both of her, um, collection, uh, her novel, which is from Black Dirt, which is semi-autobiographical, and and her academic work, which is Coal and People, tell very moving stories about very human stories about what goes on in the coal camps. And she was compiling those back in the seventies before anybody else was doing that. I don't think they got published until maybe the late eighties or early nineties, even. But uh, it, 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 it's funny, some of the stories in Coal and People, which was written actually to supplement West Virginia history book, uh, really has some, some wonderful stories. I mean, it, it surely never seemed to get unstuck from the coal industry as it was in the 50s. I mean, so a lot of those stories were dated by the time they came out, but they're great stories. As a matter of fact, my father-in-law has the book right now. I got it out uh, when I heard of Shirley's death and, and was showing him that book and he's taking it and looking at it and he absolutely loves the book because he worked the mines back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and, and he, he sees those pictures and he sees good reminiscence about the life in the coal camps and the, and the people there. But but that showed up in her poetry and, and the fact that uh, she knew that that People weren't being represented correctly in the in national image, and she knew her children were good children, but were being branded in the press at the time as you know hippies and rebellious people. And and she's you know these are good people here in West Virginia. We don't. She couldn't. That that infused a lot of her writing was that those 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 juxtapositions of what she knew to be true and what she saw people being told to be true. Well, I'm told that in uh, 1994, around the time she retired from active duty with West Virginia writers, uh, it was about that time that Pat Love wrote a poem to her in which he said he considered her to be his literary mom. Yeah, she was she was everybody's literary mom. 
she really was. I mean, if you take a look at the list of folks who published in Zillin Valley, I mean, you've got you know, Virginia Harrison, Paul Curry Steele, uh, Tony Cossier, who is one of Canada's very best-known authors, Helen Ellison, uh, Helen Spence, Joe Barrett, um, Maxine Corbett, Barbara McCallum, Jack Zero, Marjorie Culver, Mike Polly, Tim Russell, Edna Vogel, Randy Keener, Ed Davis, Jill Decker, Charlotte Deskins, Doris Miller, who was one of the poet laureates, Bonnie McCown, John Souter, Harry Lynch, uh, extremely well-known Kentucky writer, Clyde Beale, uh, and then a couple of aliases for uh, um, Bob Snyder, Lana Chandler, uh, Helmer Forsythe, Ira Herman, who ran Igena Press for a long while, Louise Bailey, Bob Henry Baber, Boyd Carr, Franka Martin, Barbara Smith, David Jarvis, Terry Hill, Susan Shepard, Dale Heaster, Mabel Gilmore, who was <laughs> who was uh, Louise McNeil's college roommate. I mean, these folks <laughs> were pretty... I mean, that's a heck of a collection of people. Plus, I believe Barbara Smith and yourself are published in there, too. Yeah, a lot of my early work was published, published here. I mean, Comstock published my first things, and Shirley published, that was the second place I was published. So mentorship was a, a large part of what she did. Yeah, I mean, think about that. I mean, this is this was, what, 30, 30 years ago now. So we were all fairly young <laughs> at the time, and, and she, was, she was giving guidance to all of us. And to all of those people, and in editing, I mean, you, you send something to Shirley, and and she was putting out one of these a month with all these people getting getting uh, contributions from all over the country and from Canada, and and she would sit down and edit each damn one of them and send them back to you and say, I'm going to publish it like this if you don't mind, <laughs> and if you mind it, then and you argued with her, and she'd go back and forth with you on on every one of them. I mean, she must have been an incredible amount of work that she put in. And she did, sitting up in a room with her, with her typewriter. And she had her daughter, uh, Martha Rose, who was uh, a, a wonderful illustrator who illustrated the books for her, and Boyd Carr would send her illustrations. She met Boyd uh, working on Hillbilly, I believe. And, uh, and she just put all of this together by herself. I mean, she could run them off. I, I think she had an old mimeograph machine that she read some of these things off of and put them together and sent them out and got them copied and mailed them out in the mail. I mean, she did everything from soup to nuts to these things. And all of these people were just wonderfully talented writers. And and we they all owed her. I mean, she was the literary mom. Pat nailed it. She was, she was the literary mother to all of us. What would you say is Mrs. Campbell's legacy toward the literature of West Virginia and Appalachia? Well, I think I think part of what she would want to be remembered for is her support of writers. She had a staunch support, and she would help you in any way that she could. And also, she had a staunch support for Mountain State Press. But she was also a mother and a wife and devoted to that, and I think she'd want to be remembered for that, too. She would probably consider her family her greatest accomplishment. I would like to to read something. Certainly, um, of hers. Uh, it's the first poem that, that she published in 
her collection, No Thing But. Um, and it, it's... Well, one other thing I would like to say was that she, is that she fought battles for us. Um, and, I mean, some of us are still fighting those battles about, you know, the Appalachian writer and the Appalachian genre, uh, the regional writing. She, she bore scars. Um, people in, at the Cultural Center and, and people in, in the arts administration of the state really gave her rough times. I mean, they didn't want to do this. They didn't know anything about it. Uh, Jim Andrews was one of the few people who was very supportive at the time. But a lot of people would, would put her down. They, they thought her, she was a little country writer who, who didn't know poetry and who didn't know literature and, and didn't have any business bothering them. But she fought, and, and she bore those scars. And, and she put up with that from the state, and she put up with it from, from other folks, other, other uh, areas of literature who didn't take Appalachian or West Virginia writing seriously. And she defended us all and, 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 and fought those fights and stood her ground, I mean, forever. I mean, she, was, she finally was vindicated. In fact, there a hell of a lot of good writers in the state. And, and people know that now, but, but back then they didn't. And, and, um, and she kept that door open for us. And, and so this, uh, this poem is titled Scars, and it's the first poem in her collection, No Theme But. Soroyan said, poets die young, and not once, but many times, right up to the end. You know what he means, don't you? But sometimes wounds heal and scars form, rightly so. One cannot be forever dying. Most of Mrs. Campbell's books can be found on the Internet and are widely available through libraries around the state. Marshall University has a complete set of all 80 issues of her magazine, Hill and Valley. A tribute ceremony for Mrs. Campbell was held on August 22nd at Village Chapel Presbyterian Church in South Charleston. I'd like to end today by noting that in 2004, Fairmont State published the first literary map of West Virginia. On the illustrated front portion of the map, there are listed 35 of the most influential writers our state has produced. On the back of the map, there are an additional 150 writers. The reverse side of this map also bears a dedication to three literary collaborators, each an essential link in preserving and promoting the literary history of West Virginia. They are author, editor, historian, journalist, and publisher of the West Virginia Hillbilly and publisher of the West Virginia Encyclopedia, Jim Comstock. Author, editor, educator, and poet, Dr. William Plumley. And author, editor, playwright, poet, and catalyst for the founding of West Virginia writers, Shirley Young Campbell. It is also notable that each of these was a charter member of our organization. In many ways, the project director for the literary map, Phyllis Wilson-Moore, has inherited her position as one of the leading experts in West Virginia's literature and its authors from Shirley Young Campbell. I'd like to once again thank Phyllis for her help in putting this podcast together. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Fowle. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at popswalker.com. If you have comments or suggestions about the podcast, we can be reached by email at wvwpodcast at gmail.com. 
This program has been produced by Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded atop a hill in Mercer County.